You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Remember my voice? I do trailers. All kinds of trailers. 23, take two. One day they'll put me in a film, a proper full-length job. Until then, I'm just stuck with this sort of stuff. Go and see this. Don't miss that. The most terrifying thing you ever saw is coming to babysit for you tonight. All right, cut it down. Look, just read what's on the script, will you? What? The script. Other way up. Ah. <clears throat> Ready? Yes, yes. You flock to see brief encounters for the special... Close! Event. Huh? Close Encounters. Close Encounters, the film. Oh, I never saw it. Well, forget that film. We're on about our film. Time Bandits. The word? Time Bandits, the one you are supposed to be promoting. Remember? <coughs> you flocked to see Close Encounters for the special effects. You went to Superman to see a man fly. You went to Star Wars for the droids. You went... Now what? What's page two, man? It's under page one. Time bandits can offer you much, much more. It's not the special effects or flying men or droids which makes time bandits a unique cinematic. Cinematic! You know, pertaining to the cinema. Cinematic experience, it's the makeup. Yes, folks, you've never seen anything like it. Men made up to look like monsters. Monsters made up to look like men. Look alike men made up to look different. Different men made up to look alike. No expense has been paired, spared on the pan stick. The pan stick. No expense has been spared flying in the world's greatest makeup man. Just a minute, just a minute. What about the plot? The what? The plot. What the film is about. Well, I haven't seen it, have I? Haven't seen it? You're sitting there telling millions of people to go and see a film you haven't even seen? Well, I can't see every film I do now, can I? Oh, wonderful. Terrific. Look, give me that. What are you doing? Taking over. You're out. O-U-T. Finished. Kaput. Finito. What about the trailer? I'll do it. Time Bandits is an awfully good film. 
We have worked ever so hard on it. It's a tremendous adventure story. We like it, and we're pretty sure you will. <laughs> What's wrong with it? It's direct, punchy, honest. Honest. <laughs> honest. Honest. What's that got to do with it? <laughs> Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Morris Bershtinsky. Yes, yes, yes. The name is Agamemnon. King Agamemnon. Also back in the booth is Mr. Eric Peterson. Hello, hello. On this episode, we are looking at the 1981 film from director Terry Gilliam, Time Bandits. It's the story of a band of God's workers who have stolen a map that allows them to travel through time. Along the way, they meet a young lad named Kevin, whose parents ignore him. He joins the titular Time Bandits on their adventures as they run from God into the arms of Satan. Of course, we will be spoiling the film along the way, so if you haven't seen Time Bandits, turn off the podcast and come back after you have. We will still be here. Eric, when was the first time you saw Time Bandits and what did you think? So I saw this in the theater when it came out in 1981. I remember actually talking to kids on the playground, and this probably would have been second or third grade about this. And I, at the time, I felt it was a fun kind of adventure romp with some uh, comedic beats and you know some subtext that I didn't understand at the time that now I definitely picked up on. It was one of those things that once home video came around, we maybe rented once or twice. But I, I actually had not seen it for a number of years until I just rewatched it a couple of times in the last couple of weeks. And more so about yourself. Like Eric, I also saw it on original cinema release back in late 1981. And probably like a lot of people, I went in presuming it was going to be a laugh a minute, Python-esque type of film. We still had Life of Brian fresh in our minds. Actually, now that I think of it, Life of Brian was still showing in the cinema two years after its original release at the time that Time Bandits was uh, screening here. Uh, I'd been also at the time a fan of uh, Jabberwocky, Terry Gilliam's first non-Python-related film, and that really was stuck in my mind as being something that was definitely very Pythonish. So I went in with that sort of expectation, and I came out thinking at the time, yeah, it's it's all right, but you know, it's not the bust-a-gut-laugh-a-minute type of film that I originally thought it was. But of course, watching it Again and again on VHS over you know the next few years, and then on Blu-ray when it came out, I have definitely seen a lot of Python-esque elements. And um, I mean, this, of course, this is probably where the whole Gilliam-esque versus Python-esque thing starts. You know, I, I tend to think that what just gets described as Gilliam-esque is more in the visuals, but a lot of the Python-ish elements of this film is probably, in my mind, anyway, due to the uh, the word play or the absurdity of uh, some of the situations that Michael Palin writes about. At first, liked it, but I've grown to love it a lot more over the years. I want to say that I saw this in theaters, but I am not sure. I would have been nine years old at the time. For sure, I saw this when it was playing on cable endlessly, and I saw it so many times growing up. And it wasn't until... Rewatching it again, probably like five, six years ago, and then again for the show, that I started to really catch a lot of the jokes. So there was a lot of wordplay in here that I just completely didn't get when I was younger. 
as I grew up, I did get into Python and then other Gilliam films. I knew that this had a lot of Python elements, that we had John Cleese in here, Michael Palin in here, that we had Gilliam behind the camera, but it didn't necessarily feel like a Monty Python project as much as other things, I suppose. It wasn't one that I went back to all the time, but it was definitely one that stuck with me over the years, just, again, from having seen it just so many times on cable. Read a a lot of literature, like in the last few weeks, uh, in prep for this show, and Terry and Michael Palin had both said emphatically they didn't want people to think that this was a Python film. And yet when you get moments like with John Cleese coming out as this very polite, bureaucratic type of character saying, and who are you? Who are you? You're a, you're, you're a Robert Jolly. Good, jolly good. And it just seemed, it sort of seems that clash of a, real world situation it, like john cleese sort of looks a little bit like uh, the queen uh, attending a royal variety performance and shaking hands with everyone after their show so you're a musician are you oh how frightfully lovely for you how, how very nice and taking something like that that we recognize from the real world and putting it in robin hood era talking to the time bandits that clash of real world versus Something surreal is a very Pythonish concept. And uh, I, that's why I sort of tend to think it's more in the words. And, you know, Gilliam was always because of his role as the uh, cutout animator in uh, the Monty Python's Flying Circus shows was always more, I guess, of a visual sort of person. And that's how he made his style as he went on through uh, the rest of his film career. So. Yeah, I know the guys, they didn't want it to be perceived as a Python film and, for, you know, for good reason, but they still had some, well, at least Gilliam still had some ground to cross. He knew what he knew and he still had time to develop. But having said that, the film that he came up with is still holds his head up against anything that he did after that. Can, can we zero in on the word bureaucratic? Cause that's something that's, that stuck out to me. Obviously, having seen Brazil after this. There, there's something about the bureaucratic authority that, that he's seems intent on skewering for good reason, identifying not that necessarily people who are occupying those roles are necessarily the problem, but that the roles are the problem. And definitely the, the Robin Hood scene with, with the, you know, the bureaucratic nature of, of that. And then additionally, kind of, uh, we're going to get into like several places where you see bureaucratic authority figures or institutions that, that are being skewered or mocked or shown to be uh, without their clothes, shall we say, that that seems to be a reoccurring theme, especially in this era of his work. Even the whole idea of God being in a business suit. And I really honestly don't believe that he let the time bandits steal the map. He, he comes up with that excuse that, uh, of course, I knew that you took the map. No, I really don't think so. I think that he is a petty bureaucrat, just like Satan is a petty bureaucrat. And and Satan is all about the next big thing. He's all about computers and lasers. He doesn't necessarily know what they do, but he really thinks that that's going to be the wave of the future. That's where this film 
would still be highly relevant if made today. I mean, of course, you know, the time he says, tell me about trunk dialing, talk to me about STDs. But nowadays you say, oh, go on, tell me what HTTP is. Uh, tell me about Facebook. Tell me about internet protocols and the like. But it'd still be the same. While we're sort of already talking a little bit about Satan and his role here in this film, I couldn't help thinking a lot about uh, the representation of Satan in this film and another one of my very, very favorite uh, British comedy films that's Bedazzled from 1967 with Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Originally in uh, Bedazzled, the character of Satan is played by Peter Cook or George Spigot, as he calls himself. And the Time Bandits in this film, they're all characters who were originally employed by God or the Supreme Being and were dissatisfied with their job. In Bedazzled, George Spigot tells uh, the Dudley Moore character, Stanley Moon, that he'd previously been God's favorite before getting bored just sitting around heaven all day and and, and praising him and like a bad child. He really just wanted attention, but he wasn't prepared to just sort of sit around and praise him all day. And in Time Bandits, the six assistants were bored with their lot, so they go and create, was it a pink bunkadoo, and were sacked for doing that and decide, well, we're going to go off into our place in the world and do our thing and we're going to, we're going to take this map and we're going to show God who's really boss. But all they really want is to be back in his favor, as we see by the end. The other sort of thing that I think about as well, which is a nice comparison is between David Warner in this film, who I absolutely love. I'm a huge fan of David Warner and he plays evil genius, as you say, Mike, as this petty bureaucrat and as this egomaniac, which is as the character is written, but he's, yeah, he's more egomaniac than threatening, despite the power that he wields. And Peter Cook in Bedazzled plays him more, well, maybe less of the theatricality. He's more like a slippery car salesman, but still very bureaucratic in his way. He gets Dudley to sign a contract that says, I will take your soul. But he's a very British businessman in true devilish fashion or like a, an insurance salesman fashion, he basically will do everything in his power to not pay up. And I, I love the fact that both representations of Satan in these two comedic films, they're very British to me, very British cinema archetypes. Comes back to that word is what you said before, Michael, being bureaucrat. The contemporary to Time Bandits film that shows uh, Satan and God that came to mind. And it's one I know that uh, Morris is not a fan of. You know, I almost expected God to show up in a spectral Rolls Royce and take the hippies on into the the next uh, evolution of Earth. You know, I was thinking about the apple as I was kind of watching the end here. Satan as a bureaucrat running a record label in that film, basically. And, you know, that's much more contemporary. And that also got me to think about what one of my one of my friends likes to call these films that are made in 1911 or 1970, because this film even though it came out in 81, feels much more like a 70s film to me than a 1980s film. I also like that we're really looking at consumerism with this whole thing. And I mean, the time bandits, they're, they're robbers. They're out there trying to rob, but they're some of the worst robbers that there are. And that we really focus in on the consumerism when it comes to Kevin's parents and just how they are motivated by 
sitting around watching the TV, talking about what appliances they have versus what appliances their neighbors have, being just so all about the most modern conveniences to the point of it really being their demise. I just love this whole thing of Jim Broadbent being the TV host and him being throughout this film. I forgot that he showed up at the end again and that, that Kevin's parents show up at the end. I'm, I'm talking about like right before uh, God comes to visit them when they're uh, running across that maze and you get Broadbent there beckoning to Kevin, you know, and his parents just like, come on, you know, come join us kind of thing. Them just being basically zombies in front of the TV. He's there reading a book. Kevin's reading a book and talking about, you know, the Peloponnesians. And meanwhile, his parents just completely focused on that TV. And then I love how it's his digital watch, the dad's digital watch that sets off and says, Oh, it's time for bed. You know, he's like got all of those conveniences, including the probably at the time, brand new digital watch. Yeah. And the thing that that struck me watching it is, kind of the long tendrils coming out from from this film. I, I'm guessing that maybe Alex Cox was inspired for the parents in Repo Man by these parents. And then definitely, you know, the uh, the game show in RoboCop, the I'd buy that for a dollar, definitely sounds like, you know, your money or your life. I don't think it's any major accomplishment to say, oh, wow. I think Kevin is dreaming all of this stuff because all of the things that are in his room ends up being in his adventures. You know, we see robot toys, we see spacemen toys, we see cowboys and Indians, we see all of these things that we're going to see throughout his adventures. You know, he's reading about Agamemnon when his parents are like, oh, time for bed. So he's got all of this stuff already going on in his very fertile imagination and there's even a shot towards the end when the firemen are walking across his floor and you see them like stomp on some toys and it's just like yep those look like pretty much the toys that we just saw so the 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 stuff that we just saw in the fight of satan against the time bandits so it's like okay yeah not a a major leap here but i do like that there is that play with is this real is this not real and just having that ability to play it off as if it could be a dream but i do really appreciate that kevin's got those photographs at the end kind of as evidence that he can still hold on to those things those kinds of childhood adventures can feel like a dream or you can extrapolate some minor childhood adventures that you've imagined into something that seems much more real. So I I think it's playing with that. Definitely. The specificity of the events of of the film means that maybe it's dreaming, maybe it's not, it's kind of, it's kind of unresolved and it it can kind of, could be, you know, kind of a break with reality kind of perception deal where, you know, all the modern technology and uh, all mod cons and whatnot have, have broken him to the point that that's what his fantasy has to be to escape. And it, to him, it's very real. That sort of seems to be a thing with all three of those fantasy trilogy films. So the Time Bandits, Brazil, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen, uh, which I only watched for the first time in prep for this podcast. But yeah, there's that level of, is he dreaming? Is he not dreaming in Time Bandits? In Brazil, we definitely know that the main character played by Jonathan Price is dreaming, but we just sort of don't know to what extent. 
but the adventures of Baron Munchausen by the end, we're sort of, we think that we're getting everything he's been telling has been a story, but the closing couple of minutes, and I want to come back to this reveal, oh, well, maybe that did happen. So I like the fact that Terry Gilliam is telling us, the audience, well, you have to make up your own mind. I'm not going to lay it out for you. This is sort of not really like The Wizard of Oz. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought up The Wizard of Oz because I was seeing that a little as far as the end of the film and especially having Sean Connery show up again at the end. It felt very much like, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. But, you know, it definitely has a, a much different take uh than that and even like thinking about like the wicked witch and that ultimate evil the david warner character feels very much like the wicked witch at times and that it's such a easy way that they finally dispatch of them mostly because you know here's god it just it, it's literally a deus ex machina i always am fascinated by the whole idea too of the film's backstory and the stuff that we don't get inside of the film, this whole idea of this character horseflesh, which we hear about several times and which we see, but we really never get it pointed out. This is horseflesh. This was the guy who made the map. This was probably the guy who was the seventh dwarf of the six dwarves that are there and that he has joined up with Satan. I always am fascinated by that whole thing and that it's just completely kind of not spoken about in the movie. And it's like you can pick up on these things, but they're really never going to hand that to you. You sent us a copy of the script and horse flesh is emphasized a bit more in that. I mean, we don't sort of go through a whole real big backstory with him, but it's emphasized a whole lot more that he has betrayed his fellow time bandits and he is joined over to the dark side as it were oh gosh i've gone all star wars here there's more of a deal made of that in the original script and actually there's a few elements in the original script which i think gilliam said was more due to financing than anything that he didn't end up getting to film so the horse flesh thing i think is neither here nor there but certainly there was the futuristic scene that they end up in and I think there was also the one where they uh, come off the giant's head and they're looking for the for the castle where the evil genius is and they're going to find the most fabulous object in the world. But before that, in the script, they end up caught, I think it was in a spider's web or something like that with a whole bunch of other knights who'd been looking for the most fabulous object. They all end up prisoners in this spider web. But I think, yeah, Gilliam said that it was purely a financial thing. They just couldn't end up filming that. And I would have liked to have seen that as well if time and money would have allowed. Uh, I, I think, sorry, there's one other thing, and I'm possibly jumping the gun here, but one other scene I would have liked to have seen added to the film would have been a third Vincent and Pansy, I think, to make it a true running gag. Two appearances doesn't make it a running gag, but three would have. It was it Myrtle and Maisie, the spider women who are, um, they're spinsters, get it? Ha ha ha. They are the ones that are spinning this web. It's kind of funny because when they go through that invisible barrier, which I've always wondered what one of those looks like, when they go through the invisible barrier and you see the castle, I was just like, oh, wow, that's very much like the castle from Krull, just kind of like hanging there kind of thing. And then the if um, Myrtle and Maisie had been in 
the movie, and I know that they shot some of it because there are definitely stills of these characters, but had they been in there, it would have been very much like the Widow of the Web character from Crawl as well. And I know, I think Crawl comes after this one, so I'm almost wondering if they said, eh, we can steal a couple ideas that Gilliam didn't use for this. The idea of, of a map maker who gains knowledge and then goes over to the side of darkness is, you know, that's the biblical story, right? That's the, the once you get knowledge, you get cast out of the garden. That kind of makes sense. If, if you're looking for, you know, the, the characters exit from the group of the naive being obviously the, uh, you know, the time bandits themselves. That's Satan's whole thing too, right? It's just like, I want to do more. I want to have more power. And then he gets cast out and ends up tempting Eve with, why don't you have the knowledge? Why not eat from this apple? Magic apple, yes. Tell me about apple products. Uh, you see, if that film had been made today. I like, too, that all of the time bandits have very distinct looks to them and that they all express it through... Their headgear, you know, you've got one, I think it's Vermin, who's got like the Confederate, like Kepi cap. You've got Randall with the airplane headgear going on. One's got like a pirate hat. You've got all this stuff. And then you've got Kenny Baker with like the strainer and the candle, <laughs> which is one of my favorite things. So is, is that the advanced headgear for the followers of the flying spaghetti monster? I think you might be right. Maybe he was one of the progenitors of that. I do think that the rest of the hats, that in addition to being able to uh, help you identify which which of the characters is which, because they don't get a lot of single time to be introduced, except for Randall, that uh, it, it helps you visually to pick them out, but also it represents different eras. Right. It makes it feel like they've been doing this for a lot longer than I think they had been. It sounds like they said that they were robbers, but they had yet to commit a robbery. So I'm very curious mm -hmm. just how long they had been out and about doing this. So they might have only just previously been kicked out, like fairly recently, despite them claiming, oh, yeah, we've been doing this for a long time. They're traveling through time. So their time heists could be, you know, it, it could be bouncing back and forth and paradoxes. So who, who really knows? We, we don't really get into the mechanics of the time travel. You know, it's the door opens and they go through it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect. But actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. I mean, they definitely have seen that Supreme Being animation before with him return the map, which was some of my favorite parts uh, of the movie when I was growing up. Just that. I didn't realize how animated the face is, that it's, you know, Gilliam going back to animation, and then that it's a different voice from Ralph Richardson, so it's much more deep and menacing. And just that face moving along, especially when they're moving Kevin's wall, I just love that face chasing them. Well, that, that face is also very much the Wizard of Oz. I mean, the, the, the film version, 39 film version, and and when you actually see, you know, Supreme Being in the flesh, he's, you know, he's the he's the proper old man who, uh, you know, looks like he's maybe not, not quite as fast as he was once upon a time. But, you know, it's definitely doesn't have the projected strength of, of that animated face. I know attention to that little man in the business suit. 
Well, and I kept wondering too if if uh, C.S. Lewis was also an influence with everything happening. You know, the the knight coming through the wardrobe, and then uh, the time bandits themselves coming through the wardrobe. I was like, oh, okay, that's kind of neat that they chose that as the portal into these uh, this other world. I feel like it kind of has to be because these are these are um, the tropes. Uh, somebody in the let's say the seventies would have written from. You know, in a children's adventure film, these are the things they would have grown up with. You know, the Lion, the Witch, the Wardrobe, and Wizard of Oz, maybe some Treasure Island. So all of that stuff has to influence the writing process. I think about the same time as Time Bandits had come out, they were doing uh, the Young Ones TV show, and there was that episode. Where, which is definitely an allusion to the Narnia Chronicles. Vivian ends up going down uh, the wardrobe chute and meets the White Witch and her servant, which, you know, what's the name? Um, Shirley. Sh- yeah. Shirley. Shirley, played played by David Rappaport. So there you go. Maybe uh, uh, it was time for um, British satire on C.S. Lewis in the early 80s. And I want to say he was also in that episode where um – Neil accidentally said the name of a demon and summoned him. Under the new ruling, all a student needs to qualify for an increased grant is a, a numkul pukajul futamuch from the local authority. What was that, Rick? A numkul pukajul futumsh. Don't you read the Guardian, Neil? What's a futumsh? <laughs> Now I've got three minutes. Well, someone could summon you up. They'll say, "Shall we go to the movies or go to the to the theatre? Shall we go eat dinner or go?" I have to say, I mean, I really like all of the Time Bandits, all of the actors that are behind it. But to your point, David Rappaport is the star of the show, and he is so fucking good. I. Love him in this, and I especially love. We were talking about the wordplay, that whole thing of like, uh, we, you know, we agreed to no leaders. That's right. Now shut up and do what I say. Now that's very Python esque. But uh, to to your point about David Rapport, to me, he should have become a big star after this. I don't know if it was bad management or things in his personal life or what. And I, you know, I was later on a fan of the show. He was on The Wizard, where he played a toy maker who solves crimes or something. It was, you know, it was the eighties, but you know, it was an entertaining show to watch as a preteen. And he just had that charisma though. And I, I don't know why he, he didn't get the right roles or somebody didn't go, we could make a bunch of films with this guy, maybe not box office smashes, but he could have played, you know, every other year, some, you know, nice middle of the road. And I don't mean middle of the road is bad, but like mid mid tier budgeted comedy. Or a, you know, adventure, something or other that he would have sh- hopefully shown in. I don't know whether this is true or not, but I was reading this book by uh, the biographer Robert Sellers. He'd written this book about handmade films called Very Naughty Boys, and in the chapter that he wrote on the Time Bandits, Terry Gilliam tells a story about David Rappaport, who'd played Randall, and he had seen himself as a thespian. And preferred to hang out with John Cleese and I'm guessing David Warner or Ralph Richardson. He basically separated himself off from 
the other dwarves in the film, which pissed them off. And there's that scene in the film where uh, they're approaching that invisible wall and the bandits are really, really angry at Randall. But according to Gilliam, because there'd been so much resentment built up between the actors, that anger was very real. And it was um, art imitating life, life imitating art. And I'm wondering whether, I mean, on the presumption that what Gilliam is saying is correct, that David Rappaport had seen himself as being above and beyond the other actors more because they weren't famous, then maybe it was that attitude that had um, kept his career from getting to that stage that you're talking about, Eric. It, it could be. It could also be this was an era where, where people weren't saying, hey, look, you can make a whole lot of money money and get your name out there by like making one of these films every year. And then you can spend the rest of your time on stage doing whatever you want. And I, I feel like that's much more of a, of a known quantity for a career for, for especially someone who's going to maybe be a character actor or somebody who's really interested in being, you know, doing Shakespeare or whatever is you got to realize you can make your money and make your name doing the whatever. And then, you know, you do that for three months and the other nine months you can do whatever you want on stage. I like the whole thing of how the little people are there. They're small and they're not threatening to Kevin. Like, just imagine if it was six full-sized men that were doing this and just how different the story would be that they are. I think every single one of them is smaller than Kevin. So it puts him at a little bit more of an advantage and really lets him be the hero of the story, whereas he would just be the tag-along if it was full-grown men as these bandits. Wasn't that something that Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin said that they deliberately wanted because they said, we want to make this a family film and it's uh, probably one of the best family films if that I can think of because it doesn't talk down to anyone. But uh, they said, right, we want this to visually be told from Kevin's perspective and that would never have worked with six-foot adults six foot bandits they might have been more threatening or just the visual angles wouldn't have worked so it was very deliberate purely because i wanted this to be a family film and tell it from kevin's side of the side of the uh, story it's interesting that they wanted this to be a family film and the assumption is that they wanted it to play across the english-speaking world when so much of this feels so very british you know i was just watching it now i'm like did, did really, as a, as a bunch of kids in the America's Midwest watching this, were we really following some of the the British slang and the, the Britishness of what's going on? And and even if you look at the, uh, you know, we haven't talked about all the time periods they go to, but they're all very much uh, things that are part of what was taught at the time as Western civilization, which is Greece, Napoleon. Uh, you know, the British Empire ending with the Titanic, Robin Hood. Uh, those, those are all very like, like Western Civ, England, France, gr- you know, Greece focused for it to play in, you know, North America or South Africa or Australia or wherever else in the world, you know, English is a dominant language. Then, then that, that's a little bit odd to me that it would have been fairly popular. And that it would have been, I guess, embraced as a family film across those those different cultures. That might have been their aim, but I'm still not sure really who did go to see it. I, I mean, at the time when I went, 
I don't know of anyone who's here, right? Oh, okay. I'm going to take the kids off to see this film. I can't recall whether it was released as, uh, well, I mean, I think it was released at the end of the year, which is traditionally school holiday time and when all the Walt Disney films get trotted out. But, you know, the fact that it did have pythons associated with it might have meant that, you know, a lot of parents were thinking, oh, well, is this something we take our kids to or not? I I mean, I was really very surprised to discover, you know, through the, the course of the last few weeks that this film was huge in America. And once again, that comes down to, you know, what you were saying there, Eric, about it's a very English film and it was embraced in America. And I, I, I from this, this side of the planet as part of the Commonwealth, we often sort of wonder how British can a film get away with over in the North America and still be accepted? I know people here watch Sexy Beast, and for me, I have to watch that with subtitles on because I can't understand a fucking word they're saying. So you'd be great with watching the films of Ken Loach then, wouldn't you? We also got to remember that this is also, you know, as, as I joked, that, you know, this is 1970-11 where, you know, for at least in my understanding and recollection, that time period was much more open towards oddball foreign films that, uh, you know, uh, I grew up in a college town, so we've had a lot of foreign films come through, including a lot of a lot of British films. You know, a Michael Palin film I remember seeing early on was uh, a private function that my mother took us to. You know, maybe my my school classmates weren't going to see that, but my classmates were definitely going to see Time Bandits. What's appropriate, too, that it's a family film in that this whole movie so concerned with family. I mean, the, the stuff I talked about earlier with Kevin and how much his parents just pretty much ignore him and then him desperately looking for a family. He kind of finds it with the time bandits, but they're really not that great of a family. But then he does find it with Sean Connery as Agamemnon and I feel so bad for him when they steal him back away because that's the perfect situation. I think the mother, the queen, is not too keen about what's going on, but he and Connery are getting along so well. And I love that scene of Connery doing magic for him. It is so good. I just, Sean Connery just lights up the screen in this role, even with that ridiculous wig. So when we're introduced to uh, Sean Connery, is it uh, Zardoz Beyond Thunderdome or is it James Bond Beyond Thunderball? I guess Minotaurs are human bodies with bull heads, right? Because I'm just like, is that supposed? To, is he supposed to really be a Minotaur, or is that just a weird hat that he's wearing? Because <laughs> you see weird hats throughout the whole thing. You see, like when the knight comes through Kevin's wardrobe, he's got basically a deer skull on his helmet. And then I was noticing yesterday just how horns play such a major part in here. I talked about um, their headgear and stuff, and I think it's Mike Edmonds got a uh, horn coming out of one side of his head. You've got those super scary dead cow things that Satan employs that have the horns coming out, and they have the cow skulls and stuff, and just even when Agamemnon gives Kevin like a, a staff to be like, you will be my son, it's got little horns on it, and I'm just like, my god, this movie... It's super horny. Well, th- there's also when they they come into uh, when he and Agamemnon come into the city. There's this massive horn trumpet that is blown. 
And the, you know, we see it first with the guy kind of polishing it. And then the camera pulls back and we see the whole thing. Any Derek and Clive fans out there, this film has got the horn. You know, I'm sure somebody's done this, but somebody should, should make a, you know, a YouTube video where, you know, we have the scene with the, the horn being polished and then, you know, it pulls back and we see the horn and it plays the sad trombone. Coming to the end of the Agamemnon scene, it sort of made me think that in a previous life that the, the time bandits had actually not been so much in charge of creating shrubberies and trees in heaven, but they'd been the entertainment trip because at the end of the Napoleonic scene, well, that was a, where they gained Napoleon's confidence is by doing a really terrible British music hall rendition of me and my shadow. And then they seem a lot more professional as dancers when they're uh, coming in disguised and entertaining the King Agamemnon. So they might have just been an all-round cabaret troupe or or vaudeville troupe up in uh, heaven. Something else that strikes me about that that scene with Agamemnon and in ancient Greece is that when we start off in then-contemporary UK with Kevin's parents in this fairly sterile house that's fairly clean except for his bedroom, Every place else we go into that to the point that we get to Greece is grubby and dirty. The exception of John Cleese, who's completely clean. Uh, but everyone else is, you know, warts and just disheveled. And, you know, with the, you know, Napoleon, every you know, it's it's the middle of the war, everything's dirty. You get to Greece, and yeah, it's kind of dusty and desolate in that first scene with the Minotaur. But when they go to uh the castle in the city. It's fairly clean and it's fairly bright and, you know, well lit and looks like people are healthy and happy as opposed to, you know, obviously the, the, the Napoleonic Wars where people are fleeing or uh, the Robin Hood Sherwood Forest where, you know, have you met the poor and the poor, they look poor. And, and it's almost like there's a there's a some kind of, of hint that visually that this. You know, Agamemnon's Greece is the the clean but happy and safe ideal of civilization, despite the fact that he comes back and he signs the death warrant for three people and is complaining about, tell the queen I run the country, not her. I do like that conflict there. I also, I mean, there's that, that kind of throwaway thing of the family that the giant crushes where I, I think it's supposed to be a troll where it's like you can hear a baby crying you hear them just like squabbling the troll husband with the troll wife and you hear the baby crying and the troll husband comes outside i think to get like a breath of fresh air and to get away from the chaos that's going on inside and he makes it back inside just in time to be smashed by that giant that sort of seems to me like a very pythonish or maybe gilliam during the Python Flying Circus era uh, type of moment, because we, when they're speaking, when that husband and wife are speaking, we never hear plainly what they're saying. It's always, which was very much part of those animated sequences in uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. So, well, I mean, the giant foot coming down was like their symbol, right? Obviously. Yes. Yes. <laughs> It's, it's the universe coming to crush you, no matter what you do, no matter who you are, no matter you know what is going on. It's the supreme being going, nope. I always wondered the whole thing of the hat, the boat as the hat, because I'm just like, 
is that guy breathe under there? How does this work? And like the sails billow at one point, and the ship starts to move, and I'm just like, all right, is the guy walking now? What is going on with this? But I just love that it's ridiculous and that it's another little twist. You know, we're talking about how they're in the age of Robin Hood, and when Robin Hood shows up, he is not what you expect. So to have the boat become a hat is definitely not what you expect. And I love too, that it's kind of like a little bit of a dry run for Gilliam to do. All right. What if I shoot this big guy at a low angle and, and kind of over crank it just a little bit here. So he's got a little bit more weight, which is exactly the same thing he's going to do in the aborted attempt for Don Quixote. I never, I haven't seen the man who killed Don Quixote, so I don't know if he ever actually did that, but I've seen the, the outtakes from his original Don Quixote that he was trying to do and how he had Don Quixote fighting three giants and they were just like three big guys that he was shooting from a low angle and over cranking it so that they had more weight to them. So in the beginning, you asked about our, our initial reactions to the film and, you know, seeing it in 1981 before, 40 years, 40-ish years ago, or 82, whenever I, I saw it initially in the theater, I, I can say that the uh, the boat walking out of the ocean is one of the things that always stuck with me because that reveal when you're a kid and you don't expect it and you've not seen it and nobody's told you about it, that that's kind of like, whoa. Uh, so I, I think that works well for, for you know a first viewing where people aren't expecting it. I like that sort of distinction between the first half of the film where they're going through these historical holes. And then once they get into what are the, what they call the time of legends and the second half of the film is pure fantasy. The first part is maybe down to pure imagination. What if, you know, in his dream, if we assume he is dreaming, if I met these historical figures that I've always read about. And the second half of the film is pure fantasy. So like the moment with the giant, with the boat on his head, coming out of the ocean that you don't expect that's pure fantasy and obvious we often hear about children with a lot of curiosity who be it in history be it in science will often have the greatest imaginations and you know fantasy is a strong part of that imagination so to go from that first part to the second part in the film really made complete sense I didn't really notice until the last time I watched this how strong the ogre wife is and that she is the one that pulls them all up into the boat when her husband's unable to do it because of his bad back, that she just gives a little yank and they all come flying up there. And then also looking at the background for her when she's making breakfast and seeing like feet hanging from the <laughs> from the rafters it's just like oh that's so nice i mean one thing that we really haven't said about this film yet is just how well designed it is and just how great it looks and i think that's one reason why we're still talking about it 40 years later is that it is a feast for the eyes like the when they go to evil's castle and there is that maze that I mentioned before. That maze set is just amazing. I don't didn't even know how they necessarily would have done that, other than maybe like matte paintings. But my God, it looks fantastic. You know who I think was probably a big fan of this film from a visual aspect, and really I guess as well from the fact that there's six characters or a bunch of characters each out on, on this mission is Tarsim Singh and uh, the film that you thankfully brought to my attention the fall um because you know, visually 
these these two films, I'd love to put them on a double bill at a repertory theater. I think they'd work side by side together so well. I think it is it is influencing those future films with the look and, and watching it today. There are a couple scenes that struck me uh, as being very much the film Black Moon from the early seventies. The Louis Mall. Yeah, kind of the slow motion with the animals and the mist. And it's been a while since I've seen Black Moon, but it, it just it came to mind when I was watching, especially when one of the characters gets turned into a pig. So I think it's, there's that continuum that, you know, that the, those early 70s kind of surreal films pulling into this and then later films like The Fall kind of pulling from it. Gilliam doesn't necessarily wear his influences on his sleeve. It feels like everything that he does feels original, though I know he is pulling from you know previous things. Like we've talked about that before when we've talked about uh, uh, Wojciech Haas and um, Borovchek. And it's just like, okay, yeah, we can see some of that stuff in Gilliam's work, but it's not like he's you know directly lifting and shifting things. It feels very much of him, his imagination when it comes to this, especially this kind of grubby, gritty world that he always presents. And I love, too, that when we get to evil's world that it's very, very industrial that you get to see all these pipes and um, levers and all of these things that are going on. It's just like that kind of world that he's going to present to us when it comes to the future and like 12 monkeys or the world of uh, all of the plumbing malfunctions in Brazil, you know, that it is just like such a grimy, steamy, greasy world that he loves to revel in. In Brazil, you still have, it, it's all futuristic, but you do get the grubby side of the John, Jonathan Price's apartment, which has been pulled apart by Bob Hoskins. That absolutely, I, I hadn't seen that in so long, and I absolutely pissed myself. Very, very funny sequence. But then, of course, there's all the, the Ministry of Information officers, which once again comes back to the maze thing that you were talking about, Mike. Uh, but it's all very clean and that hospital lighting. So it's, you, you get the combination of grubby and clean in within the, uh, the privileged world. But of course, you know, once he gets out on the road with his, his uh, love interests, uh, once they get out in the truck and they see the reality of uh, what else is around this city that no one else goes out to and no one knows about it, maybe a little bit like Logan's run. But yes, I, I do love that contrast of clean, and there's dirty and clean within that environment. But there's also the the filth of um, of the the wider world, which once again will come down to a, a class thing, which I know is something that Terry Gilliam was very focused on, and was something that I think he studied in political science at university. Following on from the the idea of the the cluttered, I mean, that's kind of makes it a maze, which is also. We think of bureaucracies as being a maze, you know, that you have to go to this window and get this form and call that person and get this approval. And you know, that kind of plays into the, you know, mentally the image of the maze that, that we come to at the end. The characters of Vincent and Pansy, they feel like they're very much part of that clean world even when it's in robin hood times like their carriage is very clean they they are clean when they're on the titanic again they're very clean as well and we get to see the time bandits all cleaned up in their beautiful uh, tuxedos that they're wearing but i love how vincent and pansy these people that we meet over and over again and i agree with you i wish there would have been a third time that we meet them to really pay it off but i love how each time 
Michael Palin's character has something wrong with him, and we're not really sure exactly what it is, that he needs fruit. He has to have fruit all of a sudden. That's the greatest Monty Python line in this film. If you want to draw it back to another great British science fiction idea, it's almost like they're the Eloy from uh, Time Machine, obviously, time speaking of time travel, and that you know, we're seeing all of these other groups that are basically the Morlocks, you know, whether they're soldiers or they're the thieves or they're, uh, you know, the the henchmen of Satan. Very much kind of a brutish Morlock concept going on there. Oh, man, I love Satan's minions. You know, we mentioned horse flesh before, but some of the other guys, like the guy who's got the, speaking of horns, the horn coming right out of the front of his head and, and how they're all in those like plastic raincoats kind of thing. It's just I love that look. It's so good. Well, they're almost like manservant Hecubus from Kids in the Hall. David Warner, I cannot say enough good things about David Warner, and it drives me crazy because my wife cannot remember who David Warner is, because she'll be like, I'll be like, oh, cool, it's David Warner. She'll be like, who's that? I'm like, okay, well, he was Master Control Program in Tron. He was the, you know, evil genius in in, uh, Time Bandits. He was uh, this Klingon in this episode. He was this, (laughs) you know, just like. Just got to get an 8x11 of him and put it up above the television. I, and I always go back to time after time because, like, that was probably one of the first times I ever saw him. And I'm just like, he was the best Jack the Ripper that has ever been Jack the Ripper. And I thought it was really interesting about how he does evil in both films because essentially all the comedic moments come with Malcolm McDowell being the fish out of water, never with, um, never with. Uh, David Warner, and he plays evil really straight down the line, and you're frightened of him there, whereas evil genius in Time Bandits, he's more the comedic joke, really. I mean, he's he's still capable of doing some terrible things, but he, you're, he, he's less frightening and, as I said before, more theatrical. Um, so I love that contrast that he has that range. He can play evil in those two different ways. And of course, another film that I sort of think of him where he had some great comedic chops was uh, The Man with Two Brains. He does kill people, but he's turning people into animals or threatening to turn them into animals, which is also part of the Greek mytho- mythological uh, story. You know, that uh, if you think about the, the Odyssey and was it Callisto's Island, I believe they're being turned into pigs. My memories of the uh, the Greek mythology right now is going straight out of my head. But would it be the Argonauts? Maybe, maybe. But I mean, it, it is a thread throughout the Greek myths of uh, you know these godlike beings that are able to turn men, especially into animals of whether they're sheep or pigs or whatever. Can't you see it, Everett? Them sirens did this to Pete. They loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. They turn one character into a dog. Could they turn beans into peas? Is, is that a riff on water into wine? There's another religious subcontext, isn't there? I do love how God even brings up the question of evil. You know, the whole thing of like, well, you might even ask why I allowed him to exist. It's like, yeah, yeah, we would ask that. <laughs> Something to do with free will. I love how he just like brushes it off so easily. <laughs> it's almost like he's got the talking points from the head office. Anybody asks, you say free will. I wanted to sort of come back to the whole concept that, well, you mentioned before about The Wizard of Oz, but I sort of want to um, talk about the ending of these films. I mean, so the ending of The Wizard of Oz, it's defined, yeah, it's a dream and all that sort of thing. But 
it seemed to me like in Time Bandits and Brazil and Baron Munchausen, for that matter, we get the concept, I think, of the double ending. And in Time Bandits, we sort of think, right, well, Kevin's going to fight the good fight. He's, uh, or they've, they've, uh, finished off with the evil genius and we have, okay, it's going to end happily. But then he comes out of the dream and his parents touch the charcoal. It's pure evil and boom, they're blown up and he's left an orphan and we're left with this. Wow. That's a pretty dark ending. And at the end of Brazil, we sort of think that the Jonathan Price character, he's escaped. He's gone out to the country, but no, he's lost in his imagination, which you could sort of say, well, maybe it's a better alternative than him knowing he's going to be put to sleep permanently. But it, that's still a very, very dark ending. In Baron Munchausen, it's sort of the opposite where his character, spoiler alert if you haven't seen that, is killed off uh, or is taken. Yeah, he, he after about four or five times meeting with uh, the angel of death, the angel of death finally takes him. But then we realize, oh, no, it's just the Baron is still telling his story that he starts at the beginning of the film. We've completely forgotten that he's telling a story. And then we look out the gates of the city wall and he, um, we see that all the stories that he's told about having defeated the enemy has actually happened. So the first two uh, go from a potentially happy ending to something dark. And the final film of this fantasy trilogy goes from something dark into something happy into something yeah a little bit more palatable for its audiences so i like the fact that that's the way how he chooses to end off the trilogy but it also got me thinking to another film that's not a gillian film but it's still a handmade film that was made about the same era that is the long good friday and that also has the double ending where the character played by bob hoskins he thinks he's finally put it over the ira and in in that last minute of the film he gets into a car, his wife gets into a separate car, and they're taken over by IRA assassins, one of who is, which is Pierce Brosnan, I'm sure his first film. And as the last 30 seconds of the film, the camera paces itself on Bob Hoskins. He has this look on his face and he's resigned. He's thinking, Oh, I thought I was in control of everyone. I thought I was in control of everything. I'm dead. I'm gone. And. I just, I love the concept of the double ending. You know, he thinks he's great. He thinks he's in a good place. And then it goes all dark. And Terry Gilliam's shown that over those three fantasy films as well. I think that's a very 70s concept. It, it makes me think of a film Mike and I talked about uh, last fall, which is The Friends of Eddie Coyle, which has a point where a bunch of storylines resolve and you think, okay. And then you get the actual ending of the film. Or the actual end of Eddie Coyle, spoiler alert. Or Sorcerer as well. That's another one. Or well, I guess Wages of Fear, if you want to put it like that. But Sorcerer, being from the 70s, has a very 70s approach to that double ending. So one of the things that, as we're recording this, I've seen a lot of talk about Raiders of the Lost Ark on Twitter today. That's also a film that, that on one hand, seems like you have a good resolution to the story. And then that last scene in the film is like, uh, maybe it's not the greatest resolution because this thing's just going to get stuck in a warehouse and who knows what's going to happen. So I think it's very much the 70s concept of you can win the battle, or you can even win this campaign, but, the, but you know, things go on and you may not win the next one. Yeah, I like this whole idea of 
that piece of evil somehow escaping through God sending him back kind of thing. And then, um, you know, him waking up in the fire and all that kind of stuff. I appreciate that. And then Agamemnon still being there. But I, I just love that his parents die in this movie. I just love that they die and they die because they won't listen to him. The one thing he tells them, don't touch it. It's pure evil. And what do they do? They both immediately touch this thing. It's just so good. That's also the scene that, that I vividly remember talking with kids on the playground about that scene after, after we'd seen the movie like a week later or whatever, that that really stuck with our young minds for, for whatever reason, you know, the, when I think back to elementary school in that era, the, you know, the films we would talk about on the playground were this and Empire Strikes Back. That was, that was pretty much the big ones. Those movies, not Empire Strikes Back and Time Bandits, but the movies that drive me crazy are the ones where the kids know the truth and the parents won't listen to them. It's just like, I can't watch those Lemony Snicket things because the kids are just like, hey, this guy's evil. And everybody else is just like, oh, ignore those kids. Just put them outside or whatever. And that drives me up a fucking wall every single time. <laughs> well, here, here's the thing. I've seen this in, in real life. Once upon a time, I worked for an Ikea in the Twin Cities. And I was in the self-serve warehouse one day and the parent was at the server, the self-serve desk asking a question and the kids telling the parent the correct answer to the question. The parents like, shut up. I'm talking to this person. And I was just standing there going, you need to listen to your kid. The kid figured out what's going on. All of these films where, where, you know, the kids are like, no, this isn't okay. And, and parents are like, oh, it's fine. I'm just like, yeah, I see that in real life. I've seen it multiple times. Unfortunately. It's like the poet said, parents just don't understand. All right, guys, let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and play the second part of the first half of our interview with Michael Palin. We're also going to hear from Og himself, Mike Edmonds, and we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. Tuning into Sci-Fi TV. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Brent Barrett. I'm Kevin Batchelder. I'm Wendy Hembrock. The Viewer's Guide to Genre Television. Welcome, everyone, to a special Supernatural-focused bonus Hello, everyone, show. and welcome to The Fae Files. A family of podcasts for the genre-loving television viewer. Welcome to Saturday Bee Movie Reel. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Study welcome Group. Welcome to the top genre characters of all time countdown. And tonight, we're going to be talking about Game of Thrones Season 3. Find us at TuningIntoSciFiTV.com. Dark Destinations is a travelogue podcast unlike any other. Cities and towns distinguished by their oddity and the fact that they don't exist. Join us at Dark Destinations, where we explore the most infamous locations to be found in fiction. From Arkham to Zyera and every point in between, we risk life, limb, and our sanity for your listening pleasure. Dark Destinations can be found at FatherMalone.com and on iTunes. 
Now on digital, Gully is the powerful and explosive crime story of three boyhood friends who find their escape from L.A.'s tough streets in one out-of-control night of partying. But when the rampage stops, retribution begins. Directed by Namil Eiderkin, Gully stars Kevin Harrison Jr., Charlie Plummer, Jacob Lattimore, Jonathan Majors, Amber Heard, and Academy Award-nominated Terrence Howard. Buy or rent Gully and watch it tonight. Rated R from Paramount Pictures. The first time that you worked with Terry Gilliam, was that on The Frost Show? No, the first time I worked with Terry was on a show called Do Not Adjust Your Set, which was made by Rediffusion in London. And that was in 1967, I think. Terry Gilliam had just arrived from America to um, travel around Europe and get away from America, as he put it. He loved Europe, and he was going to sort of settle here. And he came along and met us in the bar after the recording of one of these shows. He made a couple of animations for us in uh, Do Not Do Not Just Your Set, which were absolutely brilliant. I mean, the first one was, a, was actually about Christmas. It was called a Christmas card animation and all sorts of wonderful things of, you know, three wise men disappearing into ponds and uh, steeples of churches tipping backwards to reveal a rocket firing out. It was really the first time we we met in 67, and it was the first time I really we used his work, um, was on Do Not Just Your Set. Can you tell me a little bit about how the two of you collaborated, especially when it came to, say, something like Jabberwocky, and especially with Time Bandits? Jabberwocky was um, less complex because I was um, there as an actor, not um, not a writer. It was different because we he was acted in Python. We I knew him from the Python context, and Jabberwocky was a completely different kind of context. I was an actor in a film, which really was Terry's first first film, and so there was quite a lot riding on it. And it was unusual film. It wasn't sort of going to be like any other. It was, after all, taking Jabber, the story of Jabberwocky, which is an absurd, wonderfully silly, absurd story and a poem and, and putting it on screen. So there was a kind of feeling of the two of us together in a very Python spirit, trying to do something that was difficult and had never been done before. I suppose that was what motivated us and kept us going. With Time Bandits, there was a deliberate decision to write together. Terry hadn't asked me to write on, on Jabberwocky. Uh, he was writing up with Charles Alverson, a fellow American. But when it came to Time Bandits, I remember Terry coming around to our house, and he just had this one sheet of paper on which the whole idea of Time Bandits was written. And he said, what do you think? You know, what do you think? And uh, I said, well, great, sounds exciting. How are we going to do it on the kind of budget you can get? And he said, oh, you know, there are ways and ways of doing it. It was better budgeted than um, than Jabberwocky because we had um, money via George Harrison from Dennis O'Brien and handmade films. So there was a, a bit of money, but nothing like a sort of the budget that a special effects film like that would normally have got. 
And again, it was Terry trying to prove a point that he could write a story and tell a story about the magical world of childhood, which would be quite different from anything that had been ever done before. And and also, I mean, having, you know, six dwarves or men of restricted growth, as we had to call them in those days, or they all, they all call themselves dwarves. I mean, that we had, those were the main characters. That was great. And that really, that was the sort of thing that got Terry very excited because it was different and no one else would, um, no one else would risk doing something like that. So I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd love to write. We decided on the format of having the Time Bandits and the boy fall into different parts of history. And I suppose it was the only time my history degree at Oxford came into any use was uh, uh, on that film. Um, I was able to sort of put together the various periods and, and into which the, the, um, the dwarves were, were propelled. Did you have to look up, or did you just know all the heights of those uh, world leaders, or is that all completely made up? Uh, no, 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 it's not made up. No, I, 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 I'm pretty certain we, we got that all sorted. I think I'd actually talked to Terry about that. We had some discussion about small people being quite dangerous, <laughs> As, and also the connection between this great leader Napoleon who was getting slowly more and more paralytic and the doors had to listen to him but he's talking about smallness and small people and all that and so i think it was it was a chance for us to sort of riff on that idea that he could be small and dangerous and when we did a bit of investigation you found that yes hitler was actually quite small and uh, stalin was also quite small <laughs> that that's uh, that's how that came about but yes it was all fact checked can you tell me more about uh, the character of Horseflesh, who seems to kind of get moved out as the drafts of the screenplay move on? I can't remember much about him. Was he one of the dwarves? I can't remember. When we see him, he's in league with evil, but he seems to have been possibly a seventh dwarf along with the Time Bandits. And they make reference at one point that he's dead, but then we see him again with evil later on. It was a richly sort of creative uh, area doing Time Bandits because there was no story like that to feel. We had to create all the different characters. And I think he was probably, I don't remember a lot about him, to be honest, um, from this far back. But I think there was some characters worked out, others didn't. There was a scene, I think, I don't think it's in the film at all, where the dwarves visit the spider women. That never happened, but it was another attempt to, you know, an, an idea. Terry would say, I've got this idea, we could do this wonderful thing. They get caught in a web, and I would go away and write it, because I, I sort of wanted to make it a narrative and a story and make it vaguely logical, even in the middle of all this madness. But that, that didn't work out, and I think Hulk Splash probably didn't work out either. I do love that Vincent and Pansy show up in multiple timelines, and I was curious if there was ever talk of having them show up a third time. They were interesting because I was supposed to be, as you probably know, because you probably know more about Nigel, but I was supposed to be playing a Robin Hood. And Dennis O'Brien, who one of, one of Dennis's um, techniques was to try and sign up big names, even though Terry didn't really want big names. It wasn't what the film was about. But Dennis persuaded him that if you could have certain 
big names in, it just helped to bring the money in, and, and he was probably right about that. But it was not Terry's inclination. But Dennis thought, well, you know, let, let's get another python in, and, and particularly John Cleese, who was perhaps the best known of the pythons. Terry, particularly, and me to a certain extent, were wary of bringing other pythons in because he didn't want to make it into a python film. Uh, you know, Jabberwocky had already been the attempts to sell it as a python film because there were three pythons in. But uh, we we were we were wanting to you know um, try and stand on its own feet, not not be seen as a python film. But Dennis said, you know, persuaded us that it would be good to ask John, and we did talk to John. Uh, and I suddenly thought, well, what I could do is just give John. This was quite you know quite late on when we were about to start shooting. The best thing I could do was to give John the 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 Robin Hood part and I knew that he would he would elaborate on it himself which he did he ad libbed some wonderful stuff and it was a terrific performance and very very funny but it meant that I had to give myself something else so he created a totally new character the Vincent and, and Patsy pairing and uh, Shelley Duval was that was quite a coup at the time to get Shelley and I think she might have been in in London doing some something anyway. I know she was working on um, uh, Kubrick's The Shining uh, sometime around then. Anyway, she agreed to do it. So I made this lovelorn duo. And I think that, that I always felt it was a sort of extra that was tacked on. It wasn't actually organic to the story. But it was quite, it was quite good fun. I felt we probably had done enough. I mean, they had the two scenes. They had the big, the big Titanic scene which was fun, but there weren't, there weren't any... I don't think there was a gap for them to appear again, actually. The thing I particularly remember about Time Bandits, I have, uh, have the book here with me, is because, of course, um, Sean Connery, who died very, very recently. And uh, that, was, that was really Dennis's greatest coup, was to get James Bond into uh, a film like Time Bandits. And he was just terrific. You know, he could easily have said, well, it's not a leading part. It's just a quick part. What am I going to do? How can I control it? It wasn't like that at all. He just mucked in brilliantly. Was my, one of my favorite lines of, of, of Connery's ever was when um, the boy has sort of fallen through on top of, on top of him um, into, into ancient Greece. And he says, he asks him his name. And the boy says, Kevin. And Sure, the way Sean says, Kevin, <laughs> it's just wonderful. Uh, the way he just sort of, the way he looks, and it's got a feeling of, oh my God, who I got here. So that was um, great. Anyway, I'd better go, but um, it'd be nice talking to you, and all the very best. I am very curious how you got into the business, how you became an actor. How did I become to it? I answered an ad in a theatrical newspaper, and they were looking for little guys for a film they were making, 
And it was a children's film called Black Jack, which was all about highwaymen and things like this. And the director was Ken Loach, which is quite a well-known, famous director over here. So uh, I answered it. Well, I phoned them up and I went up for, I suppose, an audition. And uh, I got the part. Through that, I approached agent who said, would I like to be on his books? I did. And it just went on from there. And that was in 1979, I think, 78, 79, yeah. Had you done acting before that? Nope, not really. Only as a DJ for quite a time, you know, like uh, in the evening DJ, you know, doing parties, bar mitzvahs and, you know, weddings and things like this, you know. So that gave me the confidence to speak to people, you know, I don't know, you know, in that sort of manner. And, yeah, so that gave me the confidence to go other things. But my cousin, I have a, have a cousin, and he was a set director in the movie business, and he used to send me all bits and pieces of stuff and uh, information of films he was doing. And things. So that kept me interested. And I've always been interested in films since I was a kid, you know. I've still got all the, the yearly books, the annuals, you know, of films and stuff like this, yeah. So that was it. So I, I'm sorry, and I just did it. I went on from there. From what I understand, you've been involved in the Star Wars universe several times, and I'm very curious, how is it to, especially when you're playing like an Ugnaught or Logray, the Ewok, how is it acting through all of that makeup? It's very difficult. I was a lot younger then, of course, you know, and I, it started off, I was uh, in a small part in uh, Empire Strikes Back as one of the uh, Ugnaughts there, you know. So Robert Watts noticed me and liked what I was doing. He was the producer of uh, Star Wars, you know, Empire Strikes Back, and also Jedi. So when Jedi came out, he remembered me and got me to the part of uh, Logre. And also I played the inside operator, Jabba, the tail operator. There was three of us, three two normal-sized guys and myself. It was quite roomy. It was great, you know, it was built on a, a platform, so there's plenty of room inside, you know. We had light, a light in there. I had a TV monitor strapped to me so I could see what was going on outside and and things like this. And uh, I could hear the director and the thing through headphones. Uh, and when, I was, when he wasn't needed, when he wasn't using particular part of the scene, we used to sit, I used to read the paper, and we had sweets and stuff, a lot of candies and stuff, and uh, yeah, so that was it, safe, safe getting in and out all the time, yeah. Can you tell me, how did you end up getting the part in Time Bandits, what was that like? That was in 1981, so I'd only been in the film business for a few years. Once again, you go up for all Disney. And uh, did it for Terry Gilliam, people like that. And, uh, you know, I just went up, got the part. Yes, which was great. It was lovely. Hard, hard film to do. We shot a whole lot in eight weeks. The whole, all our part. We were constantly in water, had upside down. And it was always very hard work. I couldn't do it now, but then, uh, yeah, it's very hard work. But he was great director, great director, because you always knew when you were doing well, because you could hear him laughing, you know. Some lovely people on, dumb people, actors and, and stuff. So sadly, though, I'm the last time I had it left. All the, all the others have passed away, I'm afraid. 
I don't want this to sound like a pun, but was it a small community of little people actors that you were working with when it came to that time? At the time, there wasn't many. I know they they did Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory before me, and I wasn't in that. They did films like that, so that was on a little guys involved. And the same to your side over in the States, you had people, you know. Good old friend of mine over there was Billy Barty, who I worked with, you know. And we've become firm forever, and people like that. But uh, but I think the actual film itself gave inspiration to other little guys. Perhaps I could do that, you know, and think, I could do that, you know, I'll try that, and things like that. And another thing over here, we do have every Christmas in every town, different what we call pantomimes, you know, Christmas shows, like Snow White, Cinderella, and pills like that. So Snow White is a very popular one because they have the, you know, the little guys do that, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, so you get the seven characters, so there. Yeah, instead of, they used to have, well, they still do some of the shows, but they used to have children playing the, the dwarves, you know, but now if they can get a real good little accent to do it, you know, they will. So that gave inspiration to little guys, and yeah, I'll have a go. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Were you a fan of the Pythons before you were in Time Bandits? Pythons is similar to a show I used to listen to the radio on the radio when, um, I was a kid, it was called The Goon Show, you know, and it's all weird characters like that. And my mum and, my mom and dad used to say, what are you listening to? Why are you listening to that rubbish? Which is the same as the Python, older people who say about Pythons, you know what I mean? It's the same thing. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I, quite, I find it quite funny, actually, you know, some of their stuff. And uh, so I've got to know them all now, you know, so... Yeah, you know, Mike, Michael Paley's a good friend of mine, and people like that. Yeah, because I work with them. That's fantastic. I'm glad you still keep in touch. Well, we do, we do. I, I mean, I, I did um, uh, a series over here, and uh, it gave it a story called Lost Empires, and it's all about the old Victorian Empire theatres, which is like a variety theatre around here. The, late 1880s or 19th century and 20th century, something like that. And it's all a story entwined. It was a TV series. And I'm with Colin Firth, who's a good friend of mine, yeah? People like Lawrence Olivier was in it, which I worked with him on the scenes, yeah? It was lovely. Yeah, so, yeah, we still keep in touch, you know, like Danny John Jules from Red Dwarf. Yeah, he's what character he is, but he's, he's in it. And people like that. And I'm still in touch with lots of friends in the States there, you know. And little guys in the States. Because uh, when, we, when we filmed over in the States, when we were in uh, the last... I can't remember the film, my brain's gone dead. But um, we filmed over in Oregon there, in the Redwood Forest, you know. So instead of taking all the little Ewoks over there, they they had a load of American little guys doing it, you know, so I've got friends with all of those as well. So, and we still keep in touch, you know. Where was Roger Rabbit filmed at? That was in uh, England. That was Studio One, yeah. Filmed Roger Rabbit. That was an interesting film because Roger Rabbit, of course, was a, a cartoon, so that was added in afterwards. And 
I was in the bar, the terminal bar, they call it, and, uh, yeah, where the trams go by and things like that. And, uh, yes, uh, it was very, because we didn't have you know, the actual Roger Rabbit, but Harry, well, they did. They had a very long, long cane or like a fishing pole, you know, fishing pole with a ping pong ball on the end, you know, table tennis ball. And that was our highlight. So a guy moving around, so there you go, there Roger Rabbit and hop from there to there to there. So as he moved it, we all kept our eye on the ping pong balls. They were all in unison, you yeah? know? Yeah, and so you were acting to nothing on that scene, you know? Christopher Lloyd was in that, and uh, we become friends with him as well, you know? I saw him last year as well, and he remembered me, and uh, it was great. Lovely saying hello to him. Of course, he did all the Back to the Future stuff, didn't he, as well? Do you have any particularly fond memories of Time Bandits? Any behind-the-scenes stories that you could share? There is one scene where we go, when we filmed in Pinewood Studios in England there. They've got a big back lot with a great big tank, really about four swimming pools size, you know, tank. And it's four foot deep. I'm four foot six. The, in the centre, there is a deeper bit. And that... Terry Gilliam wanted to jump in off a scaffold. They built a big scaffold in on the edge of this deeper bit. And we were at the top and we had to jump off of there, go past the camera into the water. And then he reversed the shot. And if you know time, bands, we fly back out, don't we? So, yeah, go backwards. So I'm not keen on that. And for one thing, I can't swim. And I think I'm not too keen on heights or jumping off that height anyway, you know. So Terry said to me, look, mate, come on, I'll just go through it with him. Look, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you, come and have lunch. We're going to have lunch and we're going to do the show. So we had lunch and he said, come on, I'm going to have a bottle of wine. Come on, have a couple of glasses. And by the time it was ready for the shot, I could have jumped off anywhere, you know. (laughs) They did have a guy, like a problem guy, there, just off, off shot. So he was standing by, but anything happened to any of us, he'd dive in and get us, you know. That was reassuring. Also, we had like a wetsuit underneath, you know, like a rubber suit, and like you would if you were a problem and stuff like that, you know, especially made for us, so it fitted us. So uh, it was quite all right, but that was fun. That was funny. It wasn't at the time for me, you know, but when I did it, I was, yeah, pleased. It was so good just to do that for, you know, in the time now. It's because, as I said, it showed little guys, you're not just a little guy, you can do something. You can do this, yeah. You're not in a circus, you don't have to do a circus act. You can, you know, be something, be an actor. Some of the stuff I've done is really drama, you know. You know, and not being a happy little guy, I've been a nasty little guy, things like that, where you change, you know, yeah. I was curious about the documentary about you, Under the Radar. I haven't been able to track that down, but I'd love to see it. No, it hasn't gone any far. The trouble, the trouble with it was, and I was talking to the guy who directed it or made the actual film, he's getting the permission to use these things, you know, like the documentary and, and snippets of films and things like that. And the trouble is, it costs so much. You have to, you get a year's license on it, which we had for when we released, or they released it, you know, or, and showed it to people. And then after that, it, you have to pay every time, you know, and it just works out 
but worth it, yeah. You've been in so many things. I was curious, what have been some of your favorite things to do over the years? Well, not only films, I've done TV, of course, uh, lots of series on TV. We won uh, a series called Marion and Mary Men, which is the spoof of um, uh, Robin Hood and made Marion, you know, except in this thing, it's a children's series. And Maid Marion is the boss. Robin Hood's a wimp, all he's, all he's very fashion conscious and doing his hair and things like that. I played Little Ron instead of Little John. I played Little Ron and I'd go around beating everybody up and things like that. And uh, we filmed, oh gosh, we did it for four years. We won the BAFTA, which is like an award, like an Emmy or whatever. Best children's television program and things like that. So that was a good series of me, but... Besides that, I've done theatre as well. I've done lots of theatre plays and stuff. And also, I did two years with Royal Shakespeare Company up at Stratford-on-Avon and also down in London. And that was the other children's story called Lila Ross and the Wardrobe, which is uh, quite a well-known book for kids, you know. And I played a nasty, evil little fella, which I loved, but that was great fun. It was wonderful, wonderful. I loved it. I loved the, the people and everything. Yeah. So I did that. What else? I've done commercials, of course, you know, for different things, chocolate, drinks, and things like this. I've done music videos. Yeah, you know, the Men Without Hats one. That's a world old one I did. Musical acts over here, I've done with them as well. Yeah. So I've done fairly everything. Oh, yeah. I meant to ask you about the um, the famous safety dance video. I... Oh, you like that, do you? Oh, God, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's very popular, that. It's very popular. And we, sh- we shot it in one day. I mean, I it was down in Wiltshire, which is quite a long way from me. So I left, left early in the morning to drive down there. And uh, when uh, I got there... They gave me a cassette, because we had cassettes in the car then, not three days ago. A cassette. He said, have a listen to this, and I listened to it, and it's got quite a good beat to it. We can dance if you want to. Is it? So you have to get that beat, that's the dancing beat, you know. And then we just went from there, and we shot it in a lovely village called Westkington, which is a, a typical little English village. And well, there's all sorts of people. There was Morris dancers and kids from the local school involved, and uh, yeah, it was lovely. And we shot it. I think we did it more or less in one day. And I'm still in touch with Ivan without hat figure. Yeah, so yeah, we in touch every week, and we are planning. He's coming over sometime. It was. Depends on what's happening. You know, with all this going on, and we're going to just. I did, I asked him, I said, what we ought to do, you and I will go down and go through West Kington, that village, and just reminisce, you know. And it, I never know what comes out of it. We might get a little documentary on it or something like that, you know. Yeah, so it's not happened yet, so don't take me via word. I think so. But we're, we're planning, planning just to go down there and reminisce at the moment. What have you been doing to stay busy during the pandemic? I just sit here at home watching TV and things like that. I did get into, I used to have a stall you know, in a antique market 
and I sell 50s and 60s collectibles, like old toys and, you know, different things from the 50s and 60s and 70s now, you know, so I, I still wheel and deal a bit with them as well, you know, for all sorts of things. No, you just move on. You know, I don't act anymore. I can't because I've got a very bad spine condition and I can't hardly walk now these days. So I have to use a wheelchair or one of those walker things, you know. But uh, I still keep on. Yeah, I still keep going. You change direction, don't you, if you can't do it? That's the old saying. One door closes, another one opens. And if it doesn't open, you make it open. All right, then. All right. You have a good rest of the day. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, and we are back and talking about Time Bandits, and we were talking a little bit about the end before we took a break. And when you think about it, this end is one of the most dire endings because Kevin's left at home. I'm living alone! I'm living alone! His home has burned up, most of it it looks like. His parents have just exploded, and he's all alone in the universe. And I love just how the camera pulls back from him, this kind of weird reverse shot it looks like they must have shot coming down at first but then they reversed it out from the way that the smoke is going and pulls back and back and back and back and it just echoes the beginning of the film kind of echoes um men in black a little bit too but just pulls all the way back and it's just like kevin's just as insignificant as an ant and we all are too and it's just like yeah what's this kid gonna do you know he's he's all alone in the world it was done in an, a vastly inferior version in American Beauty. Oh, God. I've tried to put that film out of my mind. All I can think of is a plastic bag. That's it. Boom. Well, it's, it's symbolic. It's the most Mike. beautiful thing I ever saw in my life. So, so with that, that ending shot of Time Bandits, I mean, thinking about it, you almost expect a, you know, a Monty Python-esque song about you know, the, your, your insignificance in the universe or you know, something, something nihilistic or something. I think I think on the one hand, one hand, you get the idea that his parents are gone, but you know his parents really have been gone the whole time. I mean, they've been the shells of, of people that are just kind of existing there. Now he's on his own, and you know this this crazy thought just struck me. But you know, does he does he become Harry Potter? Is that the deal that he's the the, the kid who survived or, or whatever? Who lived? Is this a concept that you know is coming out of these um, the British psyche of the time? I mean. So we're, we're talking about this being written by, by guys who grew up post-war and lived with the, the reality of classmates who lost, you know, parents or entire families during the war. And so, you know, how do you survive and how do you go on? Or maybe Kevin has kept his curiosity about the world and his, not his innocence, but his, his you know, his, his ability to see through all of the, the, frankly, bullshit of the, you know, the rat race and I almost expect that if, if we caught up with Kevin five years later, he's, you know, playing in a post-punk band and go, going on and on about Thatcher or whatever. Oh, he'd definitely be um, uh, writing literature or singing songs against Thatcher. And it's interesting that this film, with its Gilliam cynical take, comes in at the early days of uh, Thatcherism. So 
a lot of evil geniuses' greed was uh, inspired by real events. Tell me about what's going on here. Tell me, yes, I'm going to remake the world in my image, not in his image. And that really seems to be a very Thatcher-esque. One person who I have to bring up is George Harrison because, you know, being a Beatles freak and all that sort of thing. But I love the fact that I watched that documentary and I know that you did as well, Mike, called An Accidental Studio. And it tells a whole story about how George Harrison and his business partner, Dennis O'Brien, got handmade films started. And I, I mean, I love the fact that in that entire documentary where we see the archival footage of George Harrison, there's nearly no mention made of his Beatles past. It's all about George Harrison as uncomfortable film producer, but ostensibly because he just wanted to see Life of Brian when no one else was going to put up the money to have it made. There was an interesting story that, I, once again, I think came from this book, Very Naughty Boys, or maybe it was actually in a, a an interview with Terry Gilliam on the, the Arrow Blu-ray of Time Bandits. But either way, there's a story about how I think Ray Cooper, who is a percussionist as well as a production guy, for handmade films had said, uh, Hey, why do you get George to write the music for the time bandits? And, uh, Gilliam was absolutely opposed to that. He thought, you know, he, um, Harrison may be a Beatle. He may have, he may be providing me with all the money for this film to be made, but there's no way he can write the sort of music that I want. Look, I'll let him have this throwaway song at the end of the film. And I don't think Harrison was ever, you know, that really perturbed about it. But in uh, uh, Gilliam said that Harrison had um, basically written that song Dream Away, which we hear over the close of the film, as being like a letter to him, to Gilliam. And these lyrics, greedy feeling, wheeling, dealing, losing what you won, see the dream come undone, stumble, you may win, you may with the elementary, lucky you got so far, all you owe is apologies. And that works within the context of the film, but Gilliam saw that as a message from Harrison to him, basically saying, well, you're arrogant, show a little bit of humility there. And in that documentary about handmade films, Harrison had said, look, I bear no resentment that the Pythons went on to, you know, make meaning of life at Universal. I was happy to help them out with uh, Life of Brian and help uh, Terry out with Time Bandits, but they went on to different things. I've got other projects. That's quite fine. But Gilliam suggests that it was the experience of the bitterness, and it may have been more towards Dennis O'Brien than to Harrison himself, that uh, on the course of making of uh, Time Bandits that pushed the Pythons away from making anything further with Handmade, which I think is a little bit of a shame because I really love the look of handmade films. I love, there's a distinct look to their films, just like there's a distinct look to that other great British film studio, which we like to talk about, Ealing Studios. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I always saw Meaning of Life. It was sort of going backwards, I think. I've never been a great fan. I mean, there's some great moments in it, but just a whole bunch of sketches and it looks a whole lot more flash and a whole lot more shiny than something that handmade could have done. I would have liked to have seen meaning of life as a handmade film but well history wouldn't allow it because george harrison and terry gilliam and dennis o'brien had big egos meaning of life is the one that i never go back to i saw it once i 
really don't need to ever see it again. There's nothing in there where I'm just like, oh, remember how great that one particular skit was? No, they all seem to be about the same level, and that level is so far down below anything else. Like those last, I think it was like the last season of Monty Python where not everybody was there. I like even that better than Meaning of Life. It just doesn't do it for me. With Life of Brian, the film, it still has all the Pythonish elements to it, obviously. But unlike a lot of the Flying Circus and their first film and now for something completely different, and even to an extent, uh, Multi Python and the Holy Grail, it's a cohesive story all the way through. Uh, Holy Grail ends the way how they would have ended a Python sketch. Oh, we don't know how to end it. Oh, well, let's just have them getting arrested and show that it's a film set. Whereas Life of Brian is a cohesive story all the way through. Even the moments where you see like boom microphones enter the screen, which you know, could be seen as very much Holy Grail territory. You know, they didn't want to make it look too flesh. But it's cohesive, and maybe there's something of the disappointment uh, for me anyway, and I'm wondering about you as well, Mike, with Meaning of Life sort of being a big step back because it's shown that it could tell a story from start to finish, and I don't know if it was laziness or contractual obligations, really. Even they admit by the end of the film, oh, what's the meaning of life? Oh, we'll just be nice to each other, trying not to drink too much red wine or whatever it was that they said. And I think that's part of what's a big disappointment for me. I, and I guess I never found a lot of the sketches in that really busted up funny. The one that I go back to, which I'm not sure everybody else does, but I love and now for something completely different because it's kind of a greatest hits of their sketches and none of the sketches in Meaning of Life live up to that level for me. Even things like... Uh, the Secret Policeman's Ball. It's like, okay, here's some great skits in here. And to see those perform live in front of an audience was pretty great to see them feeding on that energy. To see Cleese out in the audience trying to sell Abatross, you know, just, it was great. I, I uh, Yeah, that Hollywood Bowl. Yeah, that Monty Python of the Hollywood Bowl. Yes, yes. That was, I, I'm imagining that that was a contractual obligation. But having, but, so having said, oh, that was a handmade film as well. But yeah, you're right. The Secret Policeman's Ball and Secret Policeman's Other Ball, which were more about the wider British comedy community, but there certainly was Python involvement in uh, both of those. And I think John Cleese was very much a supporter of Amnesty and sort of thought, right, well, we'll bring in the goodies and we'll bring in Alexi Sale. So it's something of the old, something of the new in in that. And um, that was more like a film of a concert, as was Hollywood Bowl. So there's that expectation. But if you're going to go for something that's not like, you know, out and out is representative of what you've done in the past. I, I would have liked to have seen Meaning of Life or a, more to the point, another film that was a start to end type of narrative because I reckon they had it in them. And, you know, Terry Gilliam, maybe that's as much why he was happy to break away and do his own thing because he thought, look, we're, I'm done with the, the little sketches. Let's tell full-length feature stories. And he's done that brilliantly over his career. Even the failures have, because of his, own style still have something to recommend them and i mean i i think i saw 12 monkeys you know when that came out and i wasn't so crazy about that but i i think that was more because i didn't care for brad pitt or bruce wilson it thematically it's something that i think is absolutely fantastic and something that we probably should have discussed in the first part of the show but um i just loved that this great ensemble cast i mean with kevin or play by was it craig wernock was his name and uh, the bandits themselves, you know, Jack Purvis and 
David Rappaport and Kenny Baker, you know, all they were front and center. But you know, we've already gone and spoken about individual actors. But I just sort of thought that as an ensemble, everyone had a chance to shine. And uh, Mike, you mentioned before about the strength of Mrs. Ogre. I love Catherine Hellman because at the time I was a big fan of the TV show Soap, and I was very excited to see, oh wow, uh, she's in this film. And then she went on to play the absolutely horrible mother of uh, Jonathan Price in Brazil. And I, I don't know, did she do anything more after this? Who's the boss? She was the mother of the the, the female lead on Who's the Boss, who was, uh, what's the, pr- the correct way to say this at this point in time? She was the gilf on the show. And she was she was really great on that, that show, to be honest. Uh, she She had great comedic timing and great just personality and chemistry. And she came off as as not sleazy, but definitely uh, for the time, uh, you know, a woman with with what we now say is is agency and speaking her mind and not caring what others thought uh, as far as, you know, a society as opposed to maybe caring about what people she cared about thought and how she acted around them and maybe pushing the envelope a little bit. But, yeah, that was her that was her big claim to fame after after this period in time. That's definitely her character in Time Bandits. You know, she's she's still supportive of her husband, the ogre, but she's a strong one. She's the brains and the brawn behind this relationship. Uh, what am I going to do with them, dear? Oh, growl at them, dear. Growl at them. I'll get the pot going. Absolutely wonderful. I loved her in this. And I want to say she went on to do like a lot of voice work as well, and she was did a voice in the the Cars movies. She was. Working not all the way up until she passed away in 2019, but she was working pretty close to when she passed away in 2019. So she was always so great. And yeah, I loved her in soap too. She had that great kind of ditzy quality to her was so good. And the other guy that we should have mentioned too was Charles McCune, who's the um, stage manager and he shows up in almost every Monty Python film and shows quite a bit in um, Terry Gilliam stuff. I remember him being in uh, the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, but uh, he's um, Jonathan Price's, you can't say office mate, but he's the guy whose desk is being shared on the other side of the wall. That's him. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. He looks completely different than he does in this. Yeah. So aside from Sean Connery, who do you think would be the biggest name in this film at the point in time it was released? Oh, Cleese. Yeah, probably yeah, Cleese. I guess Shelley Duvall would have been up there too, though. Yeah. This is, this is right around like Popeye time, I think, right? So this yeah. is after she had made all those films with Altman. And this was post um, Shining Shining as well. And then, yeah. Well, I think she came to this just after having completed The Shining. So just imagine. So she worked with Kubrick, Gilliam, Altman in that run of films. And I, I think I read like once again in that very naughty boys book where she was saying, oh, it's such a relief to be here after having worked for Stanley Kubrick, who treated her so poorly on the the uh, set of The Shining. So one of her more slight films, but I really love it. She was in Roxanne, the um, uh, Fred Skepsy film, the, re- the retelling of Cyrano de Bergerac with uh, Steve Munn. I love that to bits. And unfortunately, she's just sort of like a bit of a side throwaway character but whenever i think of shelly duvall i don't think of the shining i tend to think of them more in that i don't know why 
Maybe because she's so nice. I tend to think of her in Annie Hall, where uh, I think Woody Allen's lying something about he's starting to get feeling back in his jaw. She's uh, quoting about having been with a Maharishi and she, uh, and quoting Bob Dylan lyrics, and she, she's the the sort of hippie that the Woody Allen characters absolutely hate. So a little bit similar to the character that played by Diane Weist. Well, I mean, not not vague, but the the character Diane Weist plays in Hannah and Her Sisters where the Woody Allen character goes out with her late in the film and she takes him to a punk gig. And um, was it in Annie Hall where uh, uh, Shelley Duvall is taking him out? Oh, they're backstage. Was it at a Grateful Dead show or something like that? Uh, in both cases, you know, contemporary music, stuff that's not 1920s hot jazz is something that Woody Allen, all Woody Allen characters despise. So I think of her for fairy tale theater because – my mother rented those for us when we first got a VCR. And so that was basically my first big exposure to her. Oh, she was amazing in that. And I'm so glad that she did that. And to go back and see some of the talent that was involved in some of those episodes. I mean, I still remember some of them pretty clearly to this day. I would like to go back and revisit all of them. I'm trying to remember, was it, was it Klaus Kinski as the Beast from Beauty and the Beast? I know it was somebody good was the Beast, and the makeup looked very much like um, the old French version of Beauty and the Beast. All right, gentlemen, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. 2001, A Space Odyssey, is an epic drama of adventure and exploration which begins millions of years ago and ends with man confronting his destiny among the stars. It is a story that will sweep you across a half billion miles to the greatest of all the planets, mighty Jupiter. And even then, your journey will be just beginning. For across the light years, the stars are waiting and watching. 2001, A Space Odyssey, reveals the strangeness, beauty, and wonder that may be waiting for us on the moon and planets in the year 2001. 2001, A Space Odyssey, a Stanley Kubrick production from MGM in Cinerama. 2001, A Space Odyssey, roadshow engagement now at the Windsor Theater. Speaking of Kubrick, we are going to come back next week with an episode that has been years, years in the making. We are talking about Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Morris and Eric. So, Eric, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? Just life in general. As far as kind of podcasting stuff goes, I haven't been doing a lot lately. I've popped up on a couple of uh, Dig Me Out episodes, Dig Me Out podcast, 90s music review show. So I did a couple of those in, in the past year, but my next appearance, and this will lead right into Morris's next thing, is he and I have actually recorded a segment for Love That Album that will be at some point in the near future. July. So I, I guess if that leads me on to my activities at the moment. Uh, so yes, in July will be the 10th anniversary since Love That Album started. and Thank you very much. It's your 10 years as well this year, I believe, Mike. Yes, it was. How does this work? You've done like about a 1,000 podcasts in the time that I've done about 150 or something like that. How does that work? The hardest working man in podcasting. Doesn't matter. You just say, I've been doing this for 10 years. Ah, yeah, that works. I've only done two shows, but um, boy, they were good. Anyway, uh, so for the 10th anniversary episode, I decided to go and ask half a dozen people who have had associations with the shows. They've either been on previous episodes or they've been someone who 
uh, inspired me in some way with making the podcast in the first place to come on and talk about an album or two that had meant something to them. Uh, it was basically made over the lifespan of the show. So something over the last 10 years. And Eric was uh, one of those people. And um, it, it's only just occurred to me when I spoke to him at the time that he's the only non-Australian based person on the show. But Eric had done segments for many years on the, on the main program. And then when See Here came into being and I basically, I, I had to stop doing as many love that album. So I said, well, would you like to do a, a, a spinoff, a sideshow? So I'll put out through the same feed so we still get as many Love That Album programs. So for uh, several years, Eric did a show called Love That Album, a compilation edition where he would speak about his favorite anthologies, compilations, and maybe diverge into other areas as well. But it was fantastic. I learned a lot. There were bands that he would pick that I never would have known about or thought about. And just basically our different loves, it, it was a, it was a good companion piece. In that regard, so basically, Eric is going to be one of those uh, 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 segments, and uh, another five. I've still got another three to record, one tonight, so that'll be out in July. And in the see here world, uh, I think you know better about this month's episode than I do, Mike. So I was supposed to uh, record an episode about the uh, upcoming film from Edgar Wright, uh, the Sparks Brothers. None of us in the See Here team could make it. So I said to you, hey, would you like to do the See Here episode for me? And you said, why not? So uh, the next episode of that coming out is um, basically a, a de facto projection booth episode, and that'll be up. Well, probably be up by the time this episode comes out. So the next See Here episode where Tim, Bernie, and myself come on, we'll be speaking to the director of a recent documentary about Cream magazine, uh, the film's called Cream, America's Only Rock and Roll Magazine. So looking forward to talking about uh, rock and roll journalism and the differences between Cream and its contemporary magazines at the time. So that should be a lot of fun. I still don't understand why you made me fly all the way to Australia to record in your studio when I could have done it from here, but... I'm cruel that way. I'm the evil genius. couple thousand bucks out the window. <laughs> well, it's a good show. Yeah, well... So you know, not, not completely wasted. The only reason I can figure that I haven't been on Love That Album yet is just because you know how horrible my taste in music uh, is. Look, as I remember, I did invite you, and you said, I don't know what to talk about music. I like to talk about films. I can't. And I said, anyone can talk about music. If I can, you can. So here you go. I'm offering you a spot, and you pick something, and I will find something to say about it, which is a dangerous thing because you'll probably pick something like The Cure or something like that, which I can't stand. The offer is there, Mike. We want you on. We want you there. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. Just like Evil Genius. Silent thunder, sky is black as day. 
Yeah. 